Well, James is ending his letter, and in the end of his letter, he's really focusing on prayer. The last six verses all mention prayer, or the, the, the la, nearly the last six. So let's review three verses we covered in the last two weeks, James 5, 13 through 15. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. And so tonight we pick up at verse 16 and it says, Confess your trespasses uh, to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Now we're going to continue a little bit further, two more verses, Lord willing, but we're going to stop there for right now. And the title of our message tonight is The Possibilities of Prayer. So James is moving us from what we covered last week, the prayer of the elders, to the prayer of all the followers of Jesus in the congregation. So it's not just the religious elite, it's not just the clergy that are called to pray, it's everyone that is called to pray. In other words, pray is, prayer is for everyone, and, and it's an honor, but it's also an obligation of all the people in the church. Now, here's the debate when he just says here in verse 16, confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Does he mean physical healing? Well, that would seem to be a logical continuation of where we were last week. Does he mean now, does he switch to spiritual healing? That is indeed a possibility. Or there's a third possibility. And actually, I lean towards the third possibility, that he's purposely vague, that he just wants us all to know that we are to be a praying people. And, and perhaps he's just moving us to a new concept uh, uh, related to prayer, the importance of everybody praying, and the importance of the confession of our sins as it relates to our prayers. So let's go over a few things that we know that are clear so we don't end up in a ditch somewhere when it comes to this. What's clear, we saw this last week, is not all sickness is the result of your sin. It might be, but it's not. Now, yes, sickness is the result of sin entering the world, but you can't specifically say that if someone was born with a, with a birth defect, you know, the, the apostles, a man was born blind, they said, well, you know, who sinned this, you know, you know, this man or his parents, and Jesus said, nobody. It's not just, this is just what happens. And so uh, it's what happens when sin enters the world. What's clear, another thing that's clear in the word of God is that forgiveness of sins comes in the context of confession. If we want God to forgive our sins, we should confess our sins. Now, there's some things we sin we don't really, we're not really aware of, we're talking about the sins we are aware of. What's, what's not clear is how going into a booth and confessing sins to a clergy came out of this text. And that's actually where it came from. Uh, some people believe that you should have focused confession of sin meetings. 
where you just, you just, you just dump all your guilt out on other people. I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think that's what he's talking about here. So let's say maybe there's a little bit of difficulty here. Confess your trespasses or your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Let's, let's just, let's, let's consider the word of God as a whole to help us simplify this. When we sin, and we all sin, anyone who doesn't sin, the scripture says, calls God a liar. When we sin, we confess our sin to God and we confess our sin directly to the people we have offended. It is clear from the Bible that we confess secret sins. Now, some people say, do you have any secret sins? Well, we all have secret sins. Secret sins will define as sins that are in your heart that have never led to action. But do you confess those sins to God? You do because they are against him. It's not so clear, and I got to tell you, you have to be really careful with this because it's potentially damaging to confess non-action sins to someone. Sometimes people like to confess sins to get them off their chest. So they just say, well, you know, I, I hated you or I didn't like you or something like that. But it, it's not always beneficial. Let me give you a classic example. Maybe you lust for someone and you walk up to them and you say, hey, I just want to let you know that I've been lusting for you. That makes people feel really weird, really uncomfortable, and it might even be bad if they go, you know, I've been thinking the same thing about you. <laughs> this, is not a, this is not a good situation. So we have to be really careful with that. It is clear that if our sins are against people and they are private or against one or a few people, that we privately confess our sins to them. That is, that is clear. Uh, it's also clear that if our sin is public, and we've heard a lot of people, which would include many different things, stealing, telling lies, could include a whole bunch of different things, that that sin must be confessed publicly. Personally, I think here, although I do think he's a bit vague, I think that's a, what James is talking about here. I think he's talking about private sins that are against one or a few people that you confess to them privately, or public sins that you confess to a larger group of people. Uh, with, with that in mind, let's look at again the beginning of verse 16. Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Another version says, therefore confess your sins to one another. Uh, one version says, for your own benefit, and pray for one another that you may be healed. Our friend J.B. Phillips says, you should get into the habit of admitting your sins to each other and praying for each other so that if sickness comes to you, you may be healed. So we not only confess our sins to church leaders. I'm not saying that we don't. We often do confess our sins to church leaders. But we also need to have relationships in the church with people. Sometimes people will say this word here actually could mean faults. 
we need to have relationship with friends in the church that we confess and we share our struggles and our sins with. Once again, we said this last week, James assumes that you are involved in a local church. He makes that assumption. The, the, the other apostles make that assumption that you are part of a church. And so if you're you know, not part of a church, it would be helpful and be good for you and really to be obedient to the Lord to become part of a church. You say, well, I got hurt in a church. Well, you know, we'll help you with that. That, that happens to a lot of people. It's not, it's not unique to you. And sometimes we took things the wrong way. Sometimes it really did happen. So it's something that needs to be sorted out, but it's something we need to move on from. He also assumes that, number one, that you're involved in a local church. And he also assumes that when you're involved in a local church, that you're involved in developing relationships in that church. That it's not like you just come in late and leave early and you don't know anybody. It, you, you, are, you are making relationships there. It means that we need to be humble and honest. We need to find people that we can be humble and honest with. Now, if you're going to confess your sins to people, maybe some things that are going on in your heart that you're trying to work your way through, make sure they're trusted people. Otherwise, you could end up with you know, your sins being on the front page of the church newsletter. So you want to be really, really careful uh, about, about that. And so um, we want to be humble and honest. We want to be willing to admit areas of, of major and persistent sin. And again, to trusted people. It also means something else. It means that if you're in those kind of relationships, people may be coming to you. So what does that mean? It means you need to be approachable. It means you need to be sensitive. You can't be like, oh my God, I can't believe you did that. No, that's, that's not helpful. Uh, you have to be approachable. You have to be sensitive. And you have to be trustworthy with what you've heard. And if you're going to go tell somebody, if you're going to come tell me, tell that person, say, you know, I, I just what you just told me, I, I think I have to go tell someone, one of the leaders in the church. You know, it's not, it's not helpful if someone says to you, I'm, I'm thinking of killing myself. If you're like, well, you know, I'll pray about it. No, we've got to do something about that. It's not helpful if, if someone says to you, oh, I, I've developed, you know, a, a pill addiction or I'm an alcohol addiction or, or something like that, or I've been shooting up heroin or something like that. that. That's not something that you just be like, oh, okay, great. Well, you know, take two verses and call me in the morning. No, we want to help people with those kinds of things. So many people in our church have walked that road uh, already and are, and are on that road uh, right now. It's okay, and this is an overused statement, it's okay in church, it's okay not to be okay. That's a healthy culture in a church. Now, we always say it's okay not to be okay, but we don't want to stay that way. But that's a healthy culture in a church, but it's a hard culture to produce and to maintain. Why? Well, some people are resistant to change. Some people just want to confess their sins, continue to do it. I confess my sins, I got forgiven, and I'm going to go do it again because I love it, and I'll just confess it and keep doing it again. That's stupid. 
Sorry, that's just not good. I'm not saying we don't fall into sin. I'm not saying we don't get trapped, but the Bible calls besetting sins, but we don't want to be that way at all. Uh, why is it also okay? It's, why is it hard to, not okay, but why is it hard to produce a church where it's okay not to be okay? Well, it has to do with the mask that we wear. I'm not talking about the literal mask the guys in the sound booth are wearing right now. I'm, I'm talking about the... The, the, the phony mask that people put on. You know, they just want to look a certain way when they're in, uh, they're in church. And, and to be honest, and I know this is something that's not very popular in our day, sporadic attendance at church and sporadic attendance at a community group are going to make it hard for you to develop those relationships and it's we're therefore going to make it hard to change. So what James is talking about is what I would call a high-trust environment that will benefit all of us greatly, but there's a catch. We have to participate. We have to be part of it. We have to actually do it. Now, notice James says, pray for one another. So if there's sin, if there's an offense that there would be true repentance, that there would be true forgiveness, and there would be true change. What else could we pray for? We could pray that that bitterness doesn't settle in. We could pray that if it led to sickness, that, that we would pray for healing after the confession. Remember we said last week that a guilty conscience can make someone very, very sick. If it led to broken relationships, we, will, we pray that, that there will be a restoration of that relationship or those relationships. If friends are praying, what are some things we should be praying for? We should be praying, and I am strongly believe that men should be praying with men and women, women of course, unless that is your, your spouse or you know, your sister maybe or something like that. I don't mean your sister in Christ, your actual sisters. But we should be praying that we should be men and women of holiness. You know, the book of Hebrews says that without holiness, you won't see God. Now, we have to, we have to figure out, and we'll talk a little bit about where holiness and righteousness comes from as we go, on, go along, but it's something we need to be praying for. You see, unconfessed sin and not asking for forgiveness will hinder our relationships. It will, including our relationship with the Lord. And the problem is, a lot of times, if you're not really sensitive to the Lord, we'll be talking about sensitivity to the Lord in a bit. If you're not sensitive to the Lord, you won't even perceive how your sin is affecting your relationship with him. See, true confession of sins is not just to stay out of trouble because you got caught. That's what a lot of people do. They they feel like, all right, I got to fess up. I got caught. The gig's up. No, no, no. True confession of sins is a mark of repentance. It's also a way that we, if we're doing it without getting caught, we realize the lifting of the burden of guilt, and it's a big step on our thriving in the Christian life. It's, it's also a way uh, that, that a great healing process can take place between people, and it can take place in a church. Why? 
Because with confession and prayer, the power of God is at work. In the American easy, uh, church, it's easy for us to miss how much the apostles emphasize the importance of fellowship or belonging to one another in the church in the Christian life. It's a key to living a righteous life. It's a key to living a holy life. It's a key to spiritual growth. And James has been emphasizing that throughout his letter. So faith will flourish in a safe environment. What, 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 what's the soil of that safe environment? Repentance, reconciliation, forgiveness, love, healing. And that's how true biblical love and true biblical change takes place. But here we can't miss something. The power to heal is in God's power as an answer to prayer, not in the power of the clergy. Now, I'm clergy, and I'm telling you, it is not in the power of the clergy. It is in the power of God as he answers our prayers. It's also here when he tells us to to pray, to, to confess our sins, to pray for one another, it's a clear call to bear the burdens of others. And to bear the burdens of others is going to mean it can get messy at times. And, you know, loving people, messy business. It's okay. Why are you surprised? When people are like, oh, I tried to help that person. It got kind of messy. I'm like, and? <laughs> why? Why would you be surprised that it's messy, it's messy business? And so we want to be very much aware of that. It's going to be a sacrifice of time, and it's going to be really a sacrifice of maybe some of the desires, that, of things that we want to do. But Galatians 6.2 says, bear or carry one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Why would, why would God tell us that? Because that's the gospel. That's what Jesus did for you and for me if you're a follower of Jesus. If you're not, we're glad you've joined us tonight. That's what he did for us. He bare our burdens. He carried our burdens on his shoulders on the cross. So next, we, I want to look at the second half of verse 16, which actually might be the real theme of this section in verses 13 through 18. He says, The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Another version says, The urgent request of a righteous man is powerful and effective or it has great power. So who is the righteous man or woman? Well, for now, we'll just say in this context here, it is the one whose sins have been confessed and forgiven, which means it can be anyone. It can be absolutely anybody. It can be you. It can be me. It can be anyone. James wants us to know that prayer, 
I know we typically fold our hands, but or sometimes we pray with our hands open or just as we're walking along. Prayer is powerful in all of our hands, not just a select few. I, I cannot emphasize that enough, especially in the area of the country in which we live in. Once again, as an apostle who values the gathering of the people of God, James is still encouraging us to pray. Prayer is waiting for the power of God to be released. You will find that prayer will make you sufficient for the task, and prayer will fill you with God's wisdom. However, I think there needs to be a distinction that we make here. There's a distinction between, and this seems to me, uh, to be aware of the difference between our prayers, the stuff that we just pray for, and God activating our prayers. Remember we talked about the prayer of faith last week. That's God activating our prayers. And there's, there's a difference. And, and so I think there seems to... Um, when, when it's God activating your prayer, it adds a dimension to the righteous man or woman as we are committed to doing God's will. So when we're committed to doing God's will, when we're committed to thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that's going to change the way that we pray. Such people, got to say it again, it can be you. It can be you. Seek to cultivate a special kind of relationship with God that seeks to know his heart. It's not just like we're rattling off a bunch of words. We're, we're, we're interacting with God, seeking to know his heart. That's why I will often say one of the best ways you can do that, if you don't know how, is to, is to pray and read the Psalms out loud. And when you come to those places that God's heart is being reflected, just stop. Don't, don't, don't worry if you don't finish the chapter. It's okay. Just stop. I, I gave you an example last Sunday where it says in Hebrews that Jesus sympathizes with us in our weaknesses. He was tempted in all ways as we were are, yet without sin. So he, but he sympathizes with us. He's not like, hey, buck up, buddy. He's not like, get it together. No, he has sympathy. He, he aches for you. He wants us to come to him and to talk to him about that, to, to know his heart. And, and as you know God's heart, you will be much more sensitive to his leading which you will find will begin to empower your words, will begin to empower your prayers, and will begin to empower your service. And I think we're going to see in a bit with, with Elijah that there's a, there's a certain desperation about the man. Sometimes people ask me how I prepare sermons. And it always starts with this. I, I identify a chunk that I think I can get through, but this Sunday, a large chunk. And I read through it once, just once. And then I start crying. 
And I'm like, Lord, nothing to say. Nothing to say. And, and I'm just like, you have to give me wisdom in here. And then what I do is I usually will print it out and I'll take a pen and a highlighter and I'll just start reeling very slow and I'll circle words, I'll underline words and I'll circle words and I'll throw ideas up. And I'll write an arrow up into the corner and I'll write question marks and, and, and I'll be like, what's this mean and what's that? And that's God's heart and all that. And for some reason, for me, the desperate prayer and the pen and the paper somehow start to bring everything to life. Now, it's probably about two hours later that I can't even find that piece of paper anymore. It's usually been put into the garbage. I'm, I'm right I'm on a pad. I'm jotting down stuff. I'm jotting stuff on my computer. And I'm starting to just feel the flow. I'm still reading over and over and over again. I'm feeling the flow, constantly saying, God, give me your heart. Give me your wisdom. Teach me what to say. Teach me what's going on here. And, and, and it's a process. And yet I find that as I seek his heart in it, and I'm always, it's like that song we sing sometimes, lead me to the cross. I'm always just saying, lead me to the cross, lead me to the cross, lead me to the cross. And, and, and it just, God just changes me and changes my thinking about what's going on. You see, but it's also important that, to see that prayer goes beyond the words that we utter to the power that prayer releases and the actions that we take in daily life. You see, it doesn't mean that things will be easy. It means that we can face life. We can face the problems of life. And we can get kingdom work done. And so, uh, you know, in this period of, that we've been in, as a country, I, I know for a lot of people that they've been, you know, just saying, I can't even get out of bed. And I don't know why, but I just keep getting up earlier and earlier. And I'm just like, I got to, you know, and I'm not, I'm not really feeling that tired some days, but not really. And, and I'm, I'm sensing the, the energizing power of God. And, and all I would say to you is, I don't, I'm not talking about, it means nothing. I'm nothing. Don't knock it until you've tried it. Because before you give up and, and think and, or continue to think that, that prayer is for super prayer warriors only or for super Christians only, James gives us an example. Look what he writes in verse 17. He says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. So what is he saying? Elijah wasn't Superman. He wasn't an avenger. He didn't, have, he didn't have superpowers. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that, God, earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again. And the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. So what James does is what he often does is he illustrates, he used a lot of agricultural examples, but here he illustrates the teaching for us 
how the prayers of a righteous man or woman, end of verse 16, the effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails or accomplishes much. And so here he gives us an example how, through this man Elijah, how the prayers of a righteous man or woman are powerful and effective. Now, James has already given us some Old Testament. He's a New Testament writer. He's giving us some Old Testament. Uh, he's already given us some Old Testament examples. He already told us about, he used Abraham as an example, who were coming to the end of his life, uh, not this week, but the following Sunday, Lord willing. He used the example of Rahab, who was, we believe, a prostitute. Rahab the harlot, as she's known as. Uh, he used the example of Job. And now he ex uses the example of Elijah to the list. But notice one thing. He doesn't call him the prophet Elijah. He just calls him Elijah. Now, Elijah was a highly, highly, highly esteemed Old Testament prophet. He was known as a guy who preached hard against sin. He was known as a man who did great miracles. In fact, he didn't even die. God just took him up, right? caught him up into heaven. I mean, he was, he was really, you know, he was the guy. In the New Testament, when we come, you know, there's that, he, he lived around 800, 850 B.C. In the, in the New Testament, all those years later, 800, 900 years later, many people thought that John the Baptist was the return of Elijah because Elijah was just caught up by God. Uh, when Jesus went to the Mount of Transfiguration, who did he meet there? Who came and meet him, met him there? Moses and Elijah. Some people will say the law and the prophets. There's a lot of prophets, but Elijah was... was the prophet, man. Elijah was big stuff. In fact, when Jesus was on the cross, when he was crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It begins with Eloi, Eloi. People were saying, oh, he's crying out for Elijah. That's how important this guy was. But as much as people esteemed him, James quickly brings us to the reality of Elijah. He was a man with a nature just like ours. In other words, he was a dude. He was an ordinary guy. You would have seen him before. Maybe he was a prophet, or maybe one was a prophet, and you would have been like, what's that guy? Ain't nothing special about that guy. Sometimes people who knew me before I was a Christian, and then they hear I'm a Christian now, and they're like, oh, you're one of those people, huh? And I go, yeah. They go, really? What are you doing? I'm like, I'm a pastor. They're like, you're kidding me. Ain't nothing special about you. I'm like, you're not, I agree with you more than you agree with you. Let's go through just quickly. 1 Kings chapter 17 through 19. What does he do? He raises the dead. That's pretty serious, right? You're like, whoa, what a man of God. Then what does he do after that? He defeats the prophets of Baal or Baal, however you want to say his name. He's making fun of me. He goes, where's your, where's your God, man? Is he on the toilet or something, man? What's he doing? And he calls down fire from heaven. 
And then what does he do? He runs away and hides in a cave because he's afraid. Yeah, he was a man with a nature just like ours. In other words, he was a guy who went from being all about the work of the Lord and the people of God to an all-about-me way of seeing life. He's hiding. He's like, I'm the only one. God's like, you are not the only one. Stop your crying. That helps us to see, he helps us to see that even though we are weak at times, the possibilities of prayer are available to all of us as well. Now, here's the thing that I've I noticed, and it's not 100% true, but somewhat true. I think that unbelieving people often think too little of the people in the Bible. Now, a lot of times people will tell you something about Jesus and you know it's not true and just say, you haven't really read the Bible, have you? No. They're like, no, I haven't. I just heard it somewhere. Read it on the internet. Um, you know, Jesus didn't care if people you know, sinned or anything like that. But, but I think a lot of times unbelieving people think too little of people in the Bible, but sometimes I think we who are followers of Jesus might be prone to think too much of them and not see them as people and think, well, I could never, I could never be like that. Again, I think that's why James calls him a man with a nature like ours, not a prophet with a nature like ours. And he wants us to remember, it's not written here, but we need to remember that it's God who made him a prophet. The Apostle Paul said, I am what I am by the grace of God. In other words, I'm nothing, there's nothing special about me. I became the Apostle Paul because of the grace of God. I think James's point is simply this, that Elijah was simply a righteous man who prayed for people and that his society, that his culture would turn to God. And I know right now a lot of people are looking at what's going on in our country and they're thinking, man, this stuff is really messed up. Maybe we need to follow the example of that. Maybe, maybe this is a battle that we're, is going to be won with God's people on their knees praying for people to come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, praying for God's people to live like God's people, and praying for our society, our culture, to turn to God. James would really tell us that that Elijah was an ordinary man who was right with God. And according to James's theology, the way he lived his life proved his faith. Or his works proved his faith. He wasn't perfect. By no means was he perfect. But he was a man of God. Interesting, rather than focus on his mighty works, rather than focusing on his stinging rebuke of King Ahab of the northern kingdom of Israel, 
James focuses on his prayers. Why is that important? Why is that important? Because Elijah lived in a time of massive spiritual adultery. Elijah lived in a time of double-minded people of God. Sounds like he lived when we lived, doesn't it? I mean, let's be honest. Many Christians, and perhaps if you read the newspapers or watch certain quote-unquote news stations, I call them opinion stations, some justified, but they think that, that Christians seem to have a reputation of being about themselves, not the kingdom of God. And, and with some decisions that people to make, that's actually kind of easy to see. They're always making the decision that's in their best interest, not really considering other people. Not to mention the, com- the political climate of Elijah's day could easily make one bitter, angry, fearful, apathetic, indifferent, all things that seem to be going through the hearts and minds and souls and spirits of a lot of God's people today. So let's pick up the second half of verse 17. It says that he, he prayed earnestly, some versions say fervently, literally he prayed with prayer, or he prayed with prayer. He prayed with prayer. He prayed that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. Now that's not in the Bible, but that is a tradition. Jesus even said it in Luke chapter four, verse eighteen. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. In other words, it rained, and there were crops. So the first thing that made Elijah's prayer effective was he was righteous. Again, verse 16, the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much, accomplishes a lot. So that's the first reason why his prayer was effective. He was righteous. Now here's the question. Is that God's part? Or is that his part? Elijah's part? In your part, in my part, or is it both? We'll come back to that in a bit. The second part was that he prayed. Now, when, when we're told effective, fervent prayer, I, I get the impression that it is a passionate prayer or, or, a, or a desperate prayer. It's not like, oh, Lord, please help it rain. That, that's, not, that's not the way it seems to be here. Once again, the situation in Elijah's day was bleak. It was awful. He was up in the northern kingdom, and the corrupt northern king politicians, King Ahab, and his wicked, 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 did I say wicked? Wicked pagan wife, Jezebel. I even hate saying her name. We're just making things worse. And the people of God were weak. We would say the church 
was weak. And Elijah prophesied that a drought would come. You're like, oh, no rain. That's great. No rain meant no food. Because of why? Because of Israel's idolatry. You're like, but they're God's people. Yeah, yeah. It was their people of God's idolatry. And yet when it comes to prayer, I think the Lord wants us to see that prayer is what helped Elijah to discern God's heart. Again, understanding God's heart in a lot of different things you will find to be so helpful. It doesn't mean that you'll get it entirely. It doesn't mean that you'll agree with it. But it will be a big help. You see, when you, when you understand God's heart and you see a person or a nation... God often judges nations being disciplined by God when you know his heart. You know that the goal was not here for Elijah. The goal was not to hurt the people of God. The goal was to get them to come back to God. And so by, by them having to suffer, suffering often makes us pray, right? You don't hear much about people praying until there's a, there's a catastrophe. And then you hear even the, even the atheists on, on the news go, well, our hopes and prayers are with you. You know, I, it hurts me to say this. It really does. But don't underestimate God that it's quite possible that that right now that the United States of America is in such a season of God's discipline. More specifically, the church in America could be under God's discipline. What theologians sometimes refer to as God's passive discipline. It's not quite as obvious as it may seem. Children of Israel traped across the desert for 40 years with Moses. Why? Because after a short time leaving Egypt, they got to the promised land, sent 10 spies over, two came back and said, we could take that place. We got the Lord. 10 were like, oh no, the giants in the land, it's big. We're going to lose. God said, you don't want to go in? Okay, go take a walk. That walk was God's passive discipline. And all of those people except three died in the wilderness. They all died. It's possible for us. For years, people have been warning the church in America about what we have become. So often, Sunday morning is no longer a worship service. It's a show. It's a show. It's a performance. And, and as we move away from the Word of God, oh, we use the Word of God, but, but this, this form of self-help Christianity has just infiltrated the church. And, and, and those kinds of sermons are not worship. They're hearing the, the ideas of man. We want to hear from God. 
this is another thing that's quite possible here, and I wouldn't doubt it, is that there's always a, is a small, the Bible refers to it as a remnant, there's always a true small group of the people of God, and they were perhaps praying for rain for three and a half years. And consistent prayer, dare I say, passionate, desperate, fervent prayer, while we are waiting for the Lord to move, should be normal for us. That should be the normal way of life. Quite often, you're going to find, loved ones, that it's going to take a long time of persistent prayer in a spiritual doubt before God rains down on his people. And I know that that spiritual droughts can be very painful. And spiritual droughts, or when you feel like nothing is happening, or you're feeling hopeless, it can be a real test of your faith. But verse 18 says, it rained. It finally rained. In Elijah's life, God produced supernatural results through the prayers of a righteous man. It's funny that it rained. With all of our technology, we often have trouble predicting the weather, don't we? You know, you, how often do you hear, ah, the weather is never right. I think it's getting better, but, you know, but, uh, it's never right. The weatherman's always wrong. The poor weatherman's always wrong. But, but God can change the weather. <laughs> Not only can he predict it, but he can change it. So we pray. And we pray. And we pray. Waiting for God to move patiently waiting for a divine response to the prayers that we hope that he has asked us to pray. Yes, as we patiently wait, as we patiently pray, as we desperately, fervently, passionately cry out to God, even if it doesn't happen the way we want it to, God changes us. And God strengthens us. And God gives us confidence in him. You know, the older I get, the less when I read the Gospels, and I, I'm reading through the Gospel of Luke right now, coming up to the cross. But as I read through the Gospels, I used to, I used to think like, oh God, I want to see you do that stuff again. And I do. I, I want to see the miraculous. I do. Don't get me wrong. But the older I get, I think the less... the less I think the miracles are there for duplication, then they're there to build our trust in him. 
to really, really watch him, Jesus, heal people and really, really know and believe that it's going to be okay. And whether he heals me now or he heals me in the next life, I know for a fact right now he's healing me. And if you're a follower of Jesus, he's healing you. On the other hand, James already told us that we don't ask big enough. And, and the problem is we tend to ask for the wrong things. We tend to ask for things for ourselves. In Elijah, we see a man who was sensitive to God. And the example of, that James uses of the way he prays tells us a lot. Because Elijah was sensitive to God in a time when the people of God had become insensitive to God. And they still claim to be God's people. To be honest, you can pray constantly and be insensitive to God if you're just praying for the wrong things. If you're praying just kind of, I don't know, for stuff that you want. Not to mention that sin and self-centeredness dulls our sensitivity to God dulls our spiritual life. To be double-minded, which James talked about earlier, and we'll talk a little bit more in the final two verses, to have, to have one foot in the world and one in the kingdom, dulls our sensitivity to God. You, you can't live that way. When we talked about in Abraham's life that we're pilgrims, we're people not home, we're on our way home. But believing prayer of a righteous man or a woman, those types of prayers are powerful and effective for the Lord's work on earth. You know, theologians have, have asked for centuries this simple, simple question. Of all Elijah's mighty works, why did God pick this one to put in his word? I mean, it was just rain. Some say, probably the best, best explanation I came across was James wants us to connect it to healing. So they go from drought to rain. The sick land was made well. And God wants to take people who are sick through sin and make them, and this is a lot of what Galatians 6 is about, which we quoted earlier, making people useful for ministry. God wants to bring life to that which is dead, dry, rain to dry, dead land to make it fruitful. And as the rain refreshes the earth, so the prayer of faith and the power of God can refresh the sick and can refresh the soul. Friend, I want to talk to you if you're not a follower of Jesus. 
maybe as you hear this deal of three and a half years of no rain and you think of that dry, dry land, maybe you're thinking, that's how my soul feels. You're like, that idea of rain, oh, that, that would be wonderful. You're like, I, I, I need refreshing so badly in my life. Maybe, just maybe, God has allowed that dryness into your life because he wants to bring refreshing to you. Hear the words of the Apostle Peter in Acts chapter 3, verse 19. He says, repent or, or turn to God, therefore, and be converted. Become a follower of Jesus, that your sins may be blotted out, that Jesus will cover them. He will wash them away so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. You see, the presence of the Lord in your life will bring you great refreshment. And if you're a follower of Jesus and, and you're dry, you're sick, you're weary, maybe, maybe you too need to repent to be refreshed again. There's another thing that we can't miss at the end of verse 16. I've said it over and over again. He says, the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Then at the beginning of verse 17, he says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Well, if the prayer of a righteous man affects a lot, if, if Elijah prayed and it, it didn't rain and then prayed that it did rain, because he, he wanted God's people to come back to him, but then it did rain. And he was a man with a nature just like ours. Let me ask you a question. Do you have a righteous nature? The Apostle Paul would write many years after Elijah these words, Romans 3, verse 10 and 11. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. Uh, Bible contradiction, people would say. James says there is righteous people, and their prayers do a lot. Paul says there's none righteous, no, not one. Verse 11, Paul says in Romans 3, there is none who understands, there is none who seeks after God. But James says we must seek after God. Well, who's right? Once again, I want to talk to friends that are watching here tonight or whenever you're watching this, and you might not be a, yet a follower of Jesus, but you sense that you're seeking God. The reason is because God is seeking after you. That is why you are seeking God, because God is seeking after you and Peter told us, we just read it in Acts chapter 3, that your only hope is to repent, to turn to God. So Jesus and the apostles taught this, that, that the only way to get to heaven was to have the forgiveness of sins and to be righteous. 
Now, James said that if we're righteous, that our prayers will be effective. Paul wrote that there are none righteous, no, not one. But they're talking about two different time periods. Paul says, starting out, there are none righteous, no, not one. James is talking about people who have been made righteous already. Not that they are righteous, because none are righteous. You don't do something to become righteous. You are made righteous. And when you're made righteous, Paul said, none seek after God. God is seeking after you. But when, you, when you're made righteous by God, because he's been seeking after you, you will seek after him. So the question becomes, how do you become righteous? The Apostle Paul answers that question in, in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For he, God the Father, made him Jesus, who knew no sin. Jesus lived a perfect life. That why, that's why he was the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world to be sin for us. What does that mean? There's your cross. He, God took the one who committed no sin and treated him as a sinner on the cross. Why? That we those of us who have repented and turned to God might become the righteousness of God, might get the righteousness of God in him, in Jesus. Jesus said, if you want to go to heaven, you have to repent and believe. You have to repent. You have to turn to God and believe. You have to put your trust in him for the forgiveness of sins and for eternal life, for refreshing and to experience the possibility of prayer. <coughs> Excuse me. To experience the wonder that the God of the universe, that the creator of the cosmos, if you trust in Jesus, will become your heavenly Father, and he will hear your fervent prayers because you will be forgiven and righteous in God's eyes. And you would experience, if you never have yet, the greatest miracle in all the world that you would become a righteous follower of Jesus who seeks after God because God has become your father. Well, let's pray.